Mr. Sandman, are you a dream? Are you a nightmare? Can you please sprinkle your magic sand in ways that do terrible or wonderful things? I don't know the song well enough, but we're not talking about the Sandman from the song. We are here on Superhero Ethics to talk about Sandman, the Netflix TV show based on the popular comic book or graphic novel by Neil Gaiman. All that and more with myself and special guest Ashley Coffin right after this commercial break that probably someone, one of the Eternals, may have some control over. Welcome back. I am Matthew Fox, your host. I am joined, as I am from time to time, by a very special guest, Gron Dom of the Stranded Panda Network herself, <laughs> Ashley Coffin. Ashley, how are we doing today? I am great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We are uh, starting this a little later than I thought. We've had to put it back a couple times because turns out Thanksgiving is a fairly busy time. Who knew? I forgot. I was just like, I have so much time off. Let's just, oh, wait, it's filled with doing right. Alcohol things. (laughs) But from the moment I watched Sandman, I remembered that this is something you had been really into. I think you actually were the one encouraging me to watch this. Mm -hmm. I had watched like the first one or two episodes and it didn't really hook me. But then I tried it again. I got into it. I was like, okay, yeah, there's so much here to enjoy, but also so much to talk about. So I'm really glad that you you, you convinced me to give this a shot. Yeah, I loved loved it. And I actually didn't watch it right away first either. All of Mm -hmm. my friends growing up were really obsessed with the graphic novel, but I I remember reading little parts of it, but never reading it in its entirety because I was honestly reading more Marvel. And then my darker comic stuff was like chaos comics, like Lady Death and Purgatory, Evil Ed. It was like a very different Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I kind of went past it, which is funny because it was right in my wheelhouse because things like The Crow were very important to me. And like anything gothic like The Craft. Um, So it was weird that this wasn't really on my radar. So when the show came out, I was like, you know, uh, we'll see. Mm-hmm. But then I heard that I watched the trailer and I am I, I'm an easy get if you have a great voice. Yeah. <laughs> so I was immediately intrigued. And then I'm like, oh, my God, look at this. This is amazing. Yeah, I think I was kind of the same way. And I, I will say early on, we're going to be full of spoilers for the Sandman show. There's a lot of this that I think relates to the graphic novel, but as you just heard, neither me nor Ashley has read the graphic novel, where we talk about the show pretty much just on its own merits, which I think is fine. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of stuff out there that really does a deep dive comparison of it to the the graphic novel. And I think that's definitely worth checking out if that's what you're looking for. That's what we're going to be doing today, but we will be spoiling the entire show uh, and everything like it. So if you haven't seen it, it's not that many episodes. So I definitely recommend going back and checking it out and then uh, coming back to us. So – Actually, let's just kind of start overall because I think there's a lot of really interesting ethical questions that it brings up. But just kind of overall, what the show has a very kind of odd uh, aesthetic and tone to it that I, I think took some folks a little while to get into, but but I really loved. What did you kind of love overall about the show and, and the way it's presented? I feel like. But what were your overall feelings, either good or it's bad? It's right on brand with Neil Gaiman, and I'm a huge Neil Gaiman fan. So if you watched American Gods or any of the other shows, mm-hmm. American Gods. I didn't like as much as this one, which, you know, I, I to each their own, but I liked the books a lot more and I feel like that's just how everything goes. So I'm kind of glad that I didn't read any of the books because I really enjoyed mm-hmm. the show. But what I heard from this was that Neil Gaiman had his hand pretty much on the wheel and that boards from the show were pretty much boards from the comics. So I didn't hear too many people freaking out <laughs> or being right. upset about it. And I just love the style of the way that he writes his gods and he writes, um, you know, his people like the bonus for how these characters were also written as well-rounded human beings, like sympathetic, but they're flawed and they're just Mm -hmm. like any other human, but they're these endless powerful beings. Um, And then like a couple fun facts that I liked about it is, um, you know, it features so many LGBTQ characters, including the first transgender character in a mainstream comic. And I loved how Neil, Neil Gaiman leaned into that in the show. I don't know. The the aesthetic of this show was so amazing. And they thought it could never be done as a show because it's too high fantasy. And Netflix was like, hold my checkbook, Neil. We can dip our yeah. toe into the icy <laughs> waters of this imaginative pool. And they really, I thought they pulled something out really cool because it is, it was interesting. It, it feels like two different stories. Mm-hmm. And to be able to keep people invested is in that is kind of hard, I think. I think that's definitely a good way of putting it because 
from the start, and this is kind of where I want to start our, our, our discussion, it's it's a very different take on the idea of sort of supernatural beings because you kind of even with your language, it's like are they gods? Are they just sort of ephemeral beings? And it's interesting because on the one hand, the show is very grounded in Christian mythology, mm-hmm. and I don't mean that it's at all having Christian like values or ideas, but like you know, it it takes literally many of the Christian stories, like Cain and Abel mm-hmm. and Lucifer. Uh, Lucifer and all that, you know, their title for themselves is the endless, the the immortal, the ongoing. They're very much like Greek gods in a mm-hmm. way, you know, where the Greek gods are these people who have their pe- their per- their personalities. They have foibles, they have good points, and it, it, so much of the things that happen to humanity, according to the the Greek gods and also the Norse gods and and many other kind of um, non monotheistic um, perspectives. Humanity often just is kind of like the the casualties or the the the, the side side thing that happens while all these beings are having their squabbles. And I thought that was one of the fascinating points of this is you have dream and death and desire and all these different um all these different endless who have these squabbles with each other and it has terrible effects on humanity. But that's not what they're in. None of them have like great philosophies, except maybe Lucifer. They just each have their own agendas and ideas. Mm-hmm. And that's why I can't wait to meet more of them because we we met mm-hmm. such an interesting handful. And I know that there's a couple more. And that's why I'm really excited they got a second season because it is interesting to see their different dynamics, especially when we meet death. And I feel like she's the only one who kind of has more of a like hand on the wheel and is treating people differently than all her siblings. <laughs> right. Well, let's get to each of them in a moment, but let's just start with Dream, because he is obviously Ugh. the uh, protagonist of the show. I was going to say the hero, but I think that's one of those interesting questions about him. He's he's our narrator for a lot of it. I think he's the voice you're talking about, because mm-hmm. he's an incredible voice. There will be quite a lot of thirst for that character throughout yes. the show, I promise you, particularly as, uh, particularly as Ashley's Cosmo uh, consumption goes up. Yes. But Let's kind of start with, because I think one of the most interesting things about him is we're introduced to him as he's a victim, as he is being imprisoned and held. And so there's a natural desire to root for him, and especially because bad things are happening to humanity. But then once he gets out, he's not a hero as we're often, they're often portrayed. He's portrayed as very, excuse me, he's portrayed as very vengeful, as very arrogant. Um, I took, what did you think of his character? Overall? I took that a completely different way in the beginning. Interesting. His interesting. arrogance and vengefulness is what caused him to not get out of that situation he was put in immediately. Mm, All that's also that fair, the yeah. dad wanted was him to say one word to him or kind of help him in any way. And he technically could have, which right. gets doubled down when the, when the dad dies and then the son's like, All you have to do is say, You're not going to hurt me. And I'll let you out. And, you know, because he had killed Jessime, his crow, he was really vengeful towards him. And he was like, no, I'm going to spite my I'm going to cut off my face and spite the nose or however that goes. And I'm going to sit in this bubble for 100 years when I could get myself out at any point. But because it's the one thing you want, I'm not going to give it to you. So I kind of feel like he was like, we got to see who he was pretty quickly. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. That, that That's a better description of it. And it's interesting, especially because. We know that this isn't – it's one thing for someone to say, I'm going to personally suffer for this long because I don't want to give you some satisfaction. And you can call that pride or you can call it like, I don't want to encourage other people to do this. And that can right. be a legit understanding. One of the things we're told though is that while he's imprisoned, lots of other people are suffering. Like there's this, you know, sleeping sickness that's happening all over the world and the the things that Dream is in theory – responsible for are not happening and that's never he'll say to the you know the people imprisoning him hey you should free me because these bad things are happening but for him it never enters the calculus of maybe i should just promise this boy safety because then all this suffering of all these other people and i'm not saying that it should i'm not saying he should have been that noble Mm -hmm. but i think that's a very interesting character choice because normally that's what we would get and he kind of keeps using it as a shield but then never does anything about it several times He's like, you're hurting the dreamers. It's a cool dream. So are you. Right. Um, and did you know that that was true? The sleeping sickness of 1916? No, I didn't. Yeah, it's, it was based on. Uh, so they did experimental studies using brain tissue from deceased patients because it was a, a year long or 
yeah, I think it was a year long epidemic and it was caused by some kind of infectious virus that was going through people, making them extremely lethargic. So they did base that off of something very true, which I thought was really cool. I like that. There's a lot of stuff in here that I could sort of point to the historical antecedent to it or the, the historical reason it happened, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. But so let's just just we'll go over the specific things he does, but just in general, where do you view Dream in terms of is he a hero? Is he an anti-hero? Is he, or even just like not arguing about the categories, just is he a good guy? Is he someone we root for? Is he someone who has a lot of problems? Because he's he's very much not the traditional hero of a show like this. Yeah, no, he's definitely, I wouldn't say an anti-hero. Um, but throughout, I guess, the 11 episodes, we see him grow so much, which I, I, mm-hmm. I can imagine happens, you know, over more story in the graphic novel. But you do see him go through this amazing kind of transformation from being this, you know, sourpuss you know (laughs) kind of an asshole to everybody and like we find out he's had one of his lovers kept in hell for all this time because she went against him and there's things that just show he's always been this very vindictive person but being captive and then getting out and then start you know starting to see people as people really kind of it did change him towards the end and i thought it was it was interesting to see that much growth in a character i think you're right i think it's a very interesting idea behind him, which is that almost really to kind of dive deeper into the idea of dreams themselves. Because I think often, at just kind of a surface level, we think about dreams as these good things and positive. And I think for most people, maybe that's kind of an overall positive thing. But obviously, dreams can be really horrific sometimes. And I'm someone who has night terrors, and, and most people have nightmares that are not great. And there's some who will tell you, like, there's a lot of different psychological or, or there's a lot of different um mental kind of ideas or things like that about how dreams can be like very insightful or dreams can be magic or things like that. But I think generally there's a perception of, oh, dreams good. And I really like that this is, as dream understands it, dreams are good because he puts out dreams to sort of help humanity grow and to evolve. And there's this kind of idea of all of them are sort of like shepherds of dream of humans and they're helping them. Right. But that maybe things Maybe his ideas for what's best for humanity can be wrong. And that one of the major parts of this whole show, this whole season, is that he's put out this nightmare, the Corinthian, that he had this idea of like dialing up nightmares to help humanity. And it turns out it really didn't work. No. And, and in some ways, it's kind of an explanation for why things in the 20th century get so horrible in humanity. The fact that um, the Corinthian is why we have serial killers, I thought was the best writing. Like Neil Gaiman mm-hmm. just brought his A game. Yep. At the serial convention <laughs> with a serial. Oh, which was, it, it was such a great. It was such a great example of Neil Gaiman at his best because it's – on the one hand, it feel, there, there's so much of it that feels so silly, the idea of serial killers going through – like I have organized and I've been at many, many conventions like that. And so having them go through all of those things while talking about killing, it was ridiculous. But yeah, it was a great way to show just the the influence that what Dream had put into the world had had on everybody. Yeah. And that guy – I love that actor. Boyd Holbrook, I think. I thought mm-hmm. the whole the whole thing was really well cast. Mm-hmm. Ugh, desire For, not to jump around, but damn that androgynous, gorgeous, gorgeous girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. So, so is there anything more we want to say about Dream and kind of his his arc and his his role before we start jumping on to the next? I feel one? like we kind of have to talk about the other characters to continue to like onion out his arc because. Everybody sure. played a big role in in who we have at the end of season one. Right. So let's go into Desire next. Desire obviously is it is interesting because uh, I forget what pronouns does Desire use in the show. I, I think, think they right, but a yeah. sh- but maybe she in Let real life. That up. I want to. Um... What I, I honestly I love about it is the not know, like the the way that they filmed it. I thought that was just a very sexy woman with a Kathleen Turner voice. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so in the original text, uh, they're referred to as it uh, sometimes, and Neil Gaiman has stated that he, she, it, he, she, and them have been desired pronouns since the beginning. So it sounds like they use kind of all pronouns, yeah. which is kind of a wonderful – because that's, that that's a idea that's being adapted but sometimes, especially by people who really think of yeah, androgynous, gender, queer, mm-hmm. um, not by any means all, but some. And it's such an interesting portrayal because it's – that's another one of those where you think of as throughout history – humanity's feelings of desire have been seen as wrong or bad mm-hmm. and problematic and actually and, and sort of the the kind of movement that you would expect from a show like this is no desire is good desire is healthy desire is a happy thing and desire is kind of the antagonist of most of the show yes. uh, or at least the person who's most sort of getting in dreams way what do you think of that portrayal amazing i mean if we were talking about uh, Tom Sturge's voice as Dream. Um, who, who's the actor who plays Desire? Uh, I will look it up. We were right there. Yeah. So glamorous. So evil. <laughs> she was just... Uh, hold on a second. Uh, Mason Alexander Park. So Mason, Alex- okay. uh, Mason Alexander Park's voice is just at the same level as Tom Sturge's. I really liked how they made all of these endless um, kind of you know, beautiful and glamorous in their own way that you can tell that they're not exactly human. Um, but I thought she crushed it. And I love like just the internal fighting, like the whole thing was her plan from mm-hmm. for, or her and um, what's the sister? It's despair. Despair, right. Her and despair. We don't really learn much about it. I wish we had learned more A about it. Well, probably more. next season. Next season, yeah. It's just like the whole thing's family rivalry when it comes down to it. And that to me is hilarious. It's like God and the devil playing chess over humanity. <laughs> I think it's particularly interesting, although we don't really explore this, but I'd love to see more of it, that the, the, the biggest rival for dream is desire. When you think about it in humanity, those two things are very often linked. You know, oh, that yes. a lot of times we first start to kind of understand our desires as well as our despairs through our dreams. You know, we dream about the things we want that we desire but can't necessarily have. And we have nightmares about the things we despair. And, and so I can see that being a very natural point of tension because those, their worlds kind of overlap a lot. Yeah. And I love that desire is just giving us full Zool. There is no Dana, only Zool. Yeah. <laughs> But, Did you get a sense of like what were there were they was it just because of some rivalry from the past they wanted to take Dream down was it just like a they had kind were, of in this in the episode with Death talked about how Desire and Dream just always had some kind of rivalry like they were always at each other but we don't know why exactly yet right but I mean what this was pretty extreme <laughs> yeah although. It's extreme from our perspective, but one of the things that I think the show really got across well is that, again, because these are the endless, because this is just – on some level, there's not much they can really do to each other. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. It feels to us like these incredible actions that are being taken, but except for Lucifer, who wants to maybe like imprison Dream forever or fully destroy Dream, it feels kind of like like siblings poking each other in the backseat of mom's car. You know, in terms of yeah. like, we this is just what we do is we're constantly needling each other. We're constantly trying to get one up on the over on the other, but no one really wants to do serious harm to the other, except for, again the fact that all of these are that they're doing it with total disregard for the the sheep that they're all shepherds of yeah. humanity. Yeah, and I mean there are rules that they have to follow, and one of the rules is they cannot spill the blood of any of the endlesses earth children or or something like that so what desire's whole plan was if he had killed rose walker who was a descendant of desire that would have broken some kind of rule and he would have i don't know i don't know what the uh, consequences of that are but that was what the plan was and it's like dang that is that is a long laid plan and that's just Mm -hmm. goes like for the endless it's like they say in true blood you know that's a 500 years that's a nap (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it very much has that sort of vampiric idea mm-hmm. of when you live forever, when you're not really afraid of death, um, the, the concept, not the character necessarily, <laughs> what's going to happen to you is really a like, yeah, it, it, you almost become so bored, that you start, you act out more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk about his gimp suit? I really was into it. <laughs> yeah, please go for it. I love, well, I love that it all turns into a quest. Like, mm-hmm. he gets taken, his objects get taken, and then we get to go on this quest to find his 
you know, his DJ helmet, his bag of sand and his his ruby. Mm-hmm. And it was just fun. To, and then it's fun to spread out into the, the universe because it's technically Warner Brothers. And so Joanna Constantine is technically John Constantine's cousin or sister. And I love how all that ties together and how that family has been involved with the endless for centuries. It's just the little branch stories that we got to get with all these mm-hmm. other characters was so fun. Yeah, I thought one of the most interesting stories, especially ethically, but also just in, gen- in in any sense, was with the, I guess it's the son of the woman who stole the ruby, and he still uh. had the ruby, and there's just, I mean, it's, there's that incredibly creepy scene where he he basically takes this black woman hostage, although in this, like, you can tell that he just does not have a malicious bone in his body. Right. He is fundamentally thinking he's had this horrible thing happen to him through his mother he wants to help and in a way what he wants to do is obliterate guest culture you know mm-hmm. when you think about like the difference between ass culture and guest culture of like you know do people speak directly or do they use you know kind of like subtlety and, and passive aggression or, or or can go up to white lies but also just kind of like indicating things without directly stating them, all of that. And it's hard even for me to discuss because normally I am 100% ass culture, direct communication. And there's just this incredible episode in the diner where he puts everyone – he basically takes away everyone's ability to do anything but speak directly. And it's just utter chaos and mayhem. Yeah, he altered that ruby, honey. Now it's a cubic zirconia. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. he takes the ruby and – changed what it's supposed to do and he's trying to make everybody tell their true tea and you know that at times is not great so shit gets real at that little diner real quick and I was not expecting that episode I mean if you didn't know which was one of my favorite episodes I mean this is okay this is trigger warning for everybody if it gets weird but uh, the scene where Bet the waitress who has a crush on Marsh the cook is explaining to him like oh you know why don't you come over they've apparently seen each other a couple times I don't know if there was anything sexual and she's telling him how you know she feels and it doesn't really go great for her because he's like you know it's hard to say but you know he's like you know when you go upstairs I I go upstairs and fuck your son yeah 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 and then he fucks me too and she's like he's a kid but then she's like oh he's 21 bet and I'm like okay he's 21 and I'm just like wait a minute everybody in the show is a little gay and I kind of Love it because it just mm-hmm. shows when you're messing with things like endless or uh, there is no line for sexuality when it comes to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, the idea of if you're around for, and this is something also vampires will often do. Like, I think Anne Rice in many ways was one of the first to really kind of put this down on, on paper, but it's been a concept of vampire lore for a while that like, if you're around that many hundreds of years and if you're thousands of years and your primary interest is their blood anyway, who cares about such a dumb human concept as gender? Exactly. You know? And then and immediately the diner falls into just like an orgy, which goes first mm-hmm. usually in these things. Like, yeah, fucking eat me out at this dinner. You know, the diner, like what is happening? And it's just so funny. It's like, I would always like to see if something like this would really happen to see if that's right. how fast we would all fall apart, you know, to fucking and then killing. Because mm-hmm. it goes real Well, especially fast. because, I mean, and it's interesting because this is never explicitly stated, but as you said, Desire has had this like centuries-long plan. What happens in that diner is that a part of just stating the truth and having their truth is that everyone's desires get to become completely out in the open, completely un- uninhibited and lived out with horrible consequences. <laughs> and I, I, always, I was wondering, and, and for people who've read the book who are listening, I'd be curious to know if this is made more explicit, if that is part of what's happening here, is that desire has in some ways been pushing I, – I wish I could remember his name. I only think of him as uh, – it, it's the actor who plays Lupin. Oh, and the, uh, in, in the show, it's John. John, thank you. Thank you. Crazy John. Um, <laughs> it's just such an interesting scene because it's about unbridled desire in mm-hmm. many ways. And I love how at the end of it, everybody's going crazy and he's walking around like, I really help these people. Look at all the good I've done. Yep. <laughs> You're just like, <laughs> what is it? Just in his PJs with his ice cream. Like he's actually kind of like – I'm not going to judge him on his life. He seems like he had his goals all worked out. And, you know, the ruby is just causing mayhem in this little town. And it right. was only activated for 10 seconds. You have madness, murder, sex, like, and, and then everybody's just like, I'm just being real. I'm just being real. Mm-hmm. I'm just telling it how it is. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. uh, I'm not going to apologize for being real. Uh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, this is terrible. <laughs> and it was, it was challenging for me, but in a good way, because mm-hmm. I think it. This is something I think that happens in, in the world a lot is that 
Like, I, I do, as I said, highly value direct communication, getting away from, like, game playing and all that kind of thing. But I think there are definitely folks who, who will take as kind of a, uh, a defense of, oh, I'm not a bitch. I'm just real. I'm not. not exactly. It's funny. I say that. I, the bitch is the language that's used a lot, but I don't, I don't mean to make it gendered. It's just as much I'm a bastard I or whatever have said it is. I it that way, too, because that's exactly. Yeah. Like, I'm not just being a bitch. I'm just being real. <laughs> right. And, and. And what happens there is, yes, you are speaking truth, but but what you're doing is not having any compassion whatsoever. There's right. no understanding of the result of your words. And again, people like in many ways, it's a lot of guys often, especially who will do like, yeah, I'm just like a, I just tell it like it is, you know, what it, whatever. And <laughs> if you can't take that, then you're just a snowflake or whatever the nonsense. It's not political by any means, though it can be. But it, it is just so fascinating to me the end of the watch because again, like you said, like a lot of it is these terrible truths that people are holding that. The guy who, like, you know, you you seduce a woman so that you can though go, go have sex with her son. A, the way we hear it at first is though the son is underage, mm-hmm. it's horrifically bad. You're like, oh, he's a grown he's a grown adult <laughs> in his 30s or 40s, and the kid's 20s. So I'm still it's it's no longer illegal, but it still doesn't seem like the most ethical thing. But even just using a woman like that to get access to her kid, it's a horrific thing to do. But part of the way it's framed is, oh, but now I'm at least telling the truth about it, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. And it's like now I'm not oh, hurting you anymore. Right. I'm not, so, you know, breaking your heart anymore. And it's like, good, you didn't lie. It's still a horrible thing to do, and it's a pretty terrible thing you're doing. Yeah. And all of those little scenarios, you know, the the overbearing, you know, power boss wife not letting the husband eat a cheeseburger. You know, everybody's experienced just a little bit of that, you know? Right. And yeah, that got crazy. And I was like, yeah. oh, he's gay too. I was like, this is crazy. And then, you yeah, know. It, <laughs> I think it really fits that aesthetic well of like goth culture. Mm-hmm. And this is especially true in the last like 10, 15 years. But I think all as long as I can remember, I was born in the 70s, goth culture's ideas for masculine figures, at least, have always been too fairly different things with no room in the in the middle right which is goth male can be large bearded leather jacket kind of like daddy i mean yeah a, a daddy figure but also like kind of did they get lost on the way to the motorcycle rally metallica <laughs> listening to like goth or hyper androgynous thin beautiful kind of like playing with gender roles especially and i think dream is dream is Masculine presenting, but also very effem- – not even effeminate, but I think andro- has some androgyny in some ways, mm-hmm. as do all of the um, the endless to some extent or another. And it's just so interesting. Yeah, that whole scene felt very- – the idea of like that everyone to some extent is maybe a little bit queer, um, you know, that that feels very much in line with that aesthetic and what I really enjoyed. Yeah. As horrible as it can be at some time. Yeah. <laughs> But then, you know, I let Morpheus swoops in and gets his ruby back from Irresponsible John. And then we go off into a completely different story. Yeah. (laughs) But before we move off of the first half, I want to talk about um, the Lucifer scene, because that was the best. First of all, Lucifer being an angel would be with it you know, without a gender. So I love the additional touch of having Gwendolyn Christie play that part and lean more into the uh, androgynous aspect. Kind of like they did with Desire, but, you know, they they just made her stunning. Right. Um, and I loved that scene, the, the like, fighting scene. Like, how would you fight if you're super, super powerful? And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's unlike anything you've ever seen. Yeah, just that idea. Because I kept waiting. I thought it was going to be a big CGI fight scene, which I was not really looking forward to. And thus it being this battle of wits of like, I am a this, I am a that, I am a... Uh, it was so well done and so much fun. <laughs> I am in an international flight, middle seat, coach, economy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, after so, that was, we just kept going back and forth. Like, what would you be? What would you be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am what? an M87 black hole bitch. Suck that little devil bitch right in there. But you can't kill hope. <laughs> and that's what I like. That was where you started to see a change. I felt with Morpheus, Morpheus or, mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call him. <laughs> Dream. Yeah, I think so. Because I think by that point, he had lost a lot of his hope, um, both for himself, but also for humanity. And there was a kind of like, well, if again, if you take this idea of them as shepherds, which isn't explicitly said in the show, but I think is kind of what's implied. Yeah. 
yeah, if you kind of lose all hope for the sheep, then then yeah, you kind of are like, what's why is my duty so important? I'll also just say on the naming thing, yeah, I like the idea that all of them have to have a, a name that starts with D, but also that it's like, so yes, he's Dream, but also they call him Morpheus most of the time. Mm-hmm. Technically, Lucifer is Devil as the D name, I'm guessing. Well, it's but, Lucifer Morningstar, right? That's what they said. Right. Well, that yeah, because that's the idea is that the but the angel whose name is Lucifer Morningstar is becomes the devil. The devil. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, so what do you think of of Lucifer's story, particularly in terms of the the vehemence towards death? Because often in these stories, Lucifer is portrayed as very sympathetically. You know, the one who challenged God and then got punished. The one who wanted better things for humanity. And it was interesting to me that, like, in this one, Lucifer is beautiful and powerful and not evil necessarily, but certainly not, like, not someone we're rooting for in any means. Yeah, she definitely has a lot of ulterior motives going on there, which we find out at the end. It seemed Mm -hmm. like that um, what they're planning is to expand hell since they can't leave hell. And I, I love that. And if they... They start going into each other's universes and taking over. I mean, that could be interesting. And so it's like you got this world and you have Earth and you have Beyond and we kind of have the Kingdom of Dream of Nightmares and the fantasy worlds. And it seems like every one of these places has their own universe. Right. Their realm is their what they realm. call it. In which each of them is a monarch of the realm. So you could see how if one realm like hell decides it wants to go out and start conquering other realms, that would be the fastest way to getting into ours. And right. that's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's an interesting set of dynamics. And it's, it, I'm both frustrated by, but also enjoy that they don't really say more of why. Like it's just, <clears throat> they're the endless, you know? Mm-hmm. You can imagine they, they don't even remember why they have these rivalries with each other. It's just, what the hell else are you going to do over hundreds and thousands of years? Yeah. And I mean, and he said that, you know, Lucifer was more powerful than he was uh, mm-hmm. going into that, which is also interesting because, like, why? explain no okay who's that hot girl who's in there helping lucifer out no we're not going to explain that okay that's fine you know she had a curmudgeon face but the other the rest of her i liked her a lot and i didn't get to know Uh anything about her yeah it's just all these little sprinkles of world building i mean just this the episode uh at the church with the exorcism of the of the princess (laughs) so funny turns out to be the exorcism of the soccer guy she she wants to marry (laughs) just so much little stuff dropped in about the kind of devil worshiping habits of the royal family and the uh again queerness of of so many of the figures including the vicar which was again awesomely portrayed and it was just such a fun scene for even those characters, like they figure that it's the the princess who must be the one who's inhabited by the devil, but no, mm-hmm. it's the soccer player who the princess has fallen in love with. And that's I thought it was really cool to bring so much magic into it, like having it all start out where you have these in the beginning, the Tywin Lannister and the other guy, you have these two fathers who both lost their children, you know, their sons in war, and so they're going to go find someone who practices witchcraft to see if they can contact death to bring their children back to life and then he goes and sees Tywin Lannister and it's it's a really sad like they're grieving and they accidentally right. something dream they think it's death but it's still just this magical you know you can sympathize with them but mm-hmm. they did you know they did it wrong for sure and then they don't let him go <laughs> that, mm-hmm. honestly it was the best thing that could have happened to dream to be honest <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you kind of, and, and, and again, it's sad because it's the like, but, but wait, horrible things also happen to humanity along the way, mm-hmm. but like for his character growth, you know, and it, <coughs> to me, there's an interesting thing there as well of when you hold up the mirror of, okay, why, why is it that, you know, we as humanity often feel like we, our lives have all of the significance, but the things that are below us, like here I'm channeling Paul a little bit, who will often be our third <laughs> for shows like this. Um, you know, he'll often talk about like, why is it that humanity sees animals as, oh, you can easily, you know, get rid of them or, or do things to them. And, and the endless in some ways, it's like, what if we humanity are the, are the lower life forms? Because the endless, I think, some of them care more about humanity. Uh, like death, I think, is the one who probably cares most for them, which yeah. we'll get into for sure. But even she, it's kind of like, She's not really seeing them as equals. Actually, no, that's not true because the whole thing that happens with the the person she makes uh, dream get to know more. But she, even she, still has a kind of like okay, they're 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 cute, they're cuddly, they're wonderful. Yeah, but they're not us, the endless. Yeah, and I mean, she is the only one who sees it as we live to serve them. 
It's kind of like the mm-hmm. only power that we have is the power that they give us. Yeah, I think it's very true. Which is cool. Which is like American Gods was kind of like that. Because as long as they had people on Earth who believed in them, it made them more powerful. Which was a really cool dynamic when you got down to like the leprechaun guys and stuff. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So let's talk about death for a bit. Because I know I, death was one of the only things that I knew of uh, from the... From the the graphic novels, because I was in college just as they were really popular. And so death on the t-shirt was a very popular image. And I I remember it being, again, like you talked about the kind of different versions of masculine goth. Now, sort of uh, for feminine goth, you had the sort of like almost Victorian, like big crazy Mm -hmm. dresses and stuff like that. But also just like black jeans. Black tank. Black tank top and an onk becomes like a look that you saw all over college. I'm not and not saying I don't have an onk tattooed on the back of my neck that looks exactly <laughs> like that one. <laughs> I'm sure. And I think it was, and and in in the graphic novel, she's white. She's very kind of pale. That aesthetic, and in this they cast a black actress for her, which I thought was brilliant. She and was stunning, especially the contrast with the two of them. That that episode. Mm-hmm. Were you just watching this? Going, how much money was this? How much money was this right. scene? <laughs> yeah, so talk to me more about like what do you think of Death as a character? Because she, in some ways, feels like if there's any one of the endless who we've met who's a hero for me, it's Death probably. Yeah, and it's I love like they do have that cute, playful brother sister relationship, but then there's also like a little bit of I don't know, cute. You know, there's something else going on there. There's a little there's bit of tar- a little there's a little bit of brother sisterness, and there's a little bit of yeah Targaryen yeah. brother sisterness, and that's that's fair. Again, you. You're around forever. Social ideals and mores they start to fade. Gonna try my brother. Um, yeah, especially when he looks like that. Christ. Um, but what I loved was that was kind of the turning point. That was the middle episode before um, we start the new story, where mm-hmm. you you start to finally see someone grabbing death by his face. He's more powerful than he's ever been. He has absolutely no reason to be sulking. And he's sitting there on the bench feeding pigeons like a little bit. My favorite scene, by the way, is when they're talking and that little rotten girl comes skipping through, scaring away all the pigeons. And he has mm-hmm. that that face. I'm like, that's how I look at children too. But she takes him on this this journey, which is, it's it's hard, not a hard episode to watch, but it is very sad. Like death mm-hmm. explaining what their job is. And he gets to see people as more than just subjects, I guess. Right. Yeah, and I love the idea that death seems to be the... Especially because of all of these things, you know, it's sort of like primordial forces, like there are libraries written about this, the, of humanity's fear of death and how much of, you know, the what drive various societies is often at root about our fear of death and everything from like what we eat to, you know, the like, you know, stay young forever kind of fashion ideas, like all of it. And yet death is probably the one who A, least uses their power and B, is most connected to humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, dream until dream only cares about what an individual person is dreaming if it's sort of problematic in the larger whole like you know hell the you know none of them seem to care that much death is so clearly invested in every single person's story mm-hmm. and we see the tragedy of death at all these different points in time and death never is, but death isn't the one killing people. Death isn't the one saying you have. It's just like, okay, my job is to help shepherd you. And it's just done with so much compassion and mm-hmm. love. Like you almost hope that that's what it's like when you yeah. see it from her. Because it is like, it's the scariest thing. And and you see every age, you know, they, they visit a baby. They visit a couple on their honeymoon. They visit a very old man. And it is interesting to see each you know, person realizing what's happening and then going and then having dreams see this, it really does open up something in him. And one of my favorite little scenes is at the end after they part ways and he's walking down this, like, I don't know, this busy alley and he smiles at somebody and it was the like, smile at me, baby. I'm the person who you would want to like recept that. Not some old curmudgeon guy coming out of the coffee shop. And the guy gives him like a weirdo kind of look. And then Dream goes right back to like having curmudgeon face. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, I love that scene because he actually tried for a second there. Yeah. And he didn't get what he thought he was going to get from it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, no, you don't get off that easy, Dream. You don't get to try it once and think that that's all you have to do. 
Right. But as he just gets to see, and he gets to, he gets to have better compassion and understanding for these individual people, mm-hmm. which I think will, and I think you're right. It's a very, in, so, in some ways, I think this is the two stories you were, you were talking about. It's somewhat episodic at times, but really it's the story of him being kidnapped, freed, and then slowly coming back into his power. And then the story of what to do with the vortex and all of that. Right. And, and that episode with death is a wonderful kind of, well, it and the episode that's very tied to it, this episode of him and the guy who lives forever. Well, I which- loved that episode so much. The Robert Gadling stuff. Mm-hmm. I love there was there's nothing about that, that stuff I didn't love. I love first of all, I love that they had dressed death dressed up like a little nun. Yep. <laughs> and I love that when you thought the episode was over, boom, suddenly we're in the 1300s. And mm-hmm. I'm going to sound like a dumb girl for a second. And it's not like I didn't know how far technology came in the last recent hundred years. But getting to see each century in this one pub was so cool. Because and then by it the really by the time we get to 1989, it's it, it's polarizing because the changes it, it's so detailed in this little um, tavern, and yeah. that there was the outfits. I'm his okay okay his wig wasn't the best. I don't know about that wig. Dreams first one. It was horrible. But anyway, it was it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. <laughs> But what an interesting thing. Like, okay, also men, straight white males who have never had to swim upstream. Oh, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. Only, only only a straight white male would say something like that. But I don't know. I love that they're like, okay, let's see what happens. Right. Yeah, it was such an interesting way. Because you're right. Every time we went to the pub 100 years later, everything from how they were getting the news to the way they were dressed, the kind of things they were talking about. And some of it was like, you know, you're the two kind of conservative-ish uh, people in the corner who were always basically being like the conservative rich people of the time with their political ideas, just it changing. But then other people who were like just the way that the, the drinks were served, whether women were there, all of it was so, so interesting. And I just love the story of this guy who, yeah, because part of it, I think it, it kind of gets to, it's the other part to me of breaking down dreams. Really, the perfect word for it is ennui. You know, yeah. he just has that feeling of, I've been around forever. I've wanted to help humanity. They just kidnapped me. I'm I'm just kind of bored. I'm done. I'm sad. And so, of course, he feels like no human would want to keep living forever and ever and ever. Yeah. And just you can see the way that the his interactions with this one particular human over time change him so much. Mm-hmm. Um, down to this really wonderful scene where the, the human kind of calls him out on his arrogance and is like, you know, I think you like me. I think you like having a friend. And Dream just – in some ways, it's it's Dream's lowest moment where he's just like, I cannot accept that. I cannot – I mean, even like make you feel terrible. How for dare even thinking. you? <laughs> right, exactly. And then, of course, while he's imprisoned, he realizes that, no, I, I do miss this guy. I do think it was a friend. <clears throat> And you get that wonderful moment of like, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm, I forget what it exactly he says. Like, I believe it is appropriate to apologize when missing an opportunity, missing an appointment with a friend. Yeah, it's like so that. sweet. Personal go- growth. Uh, gold star dream. Yeah. Gold star. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought that was such an essential thing because it not only showed, you know, the growth of the world, but it showed him like coming out of that ennui and coming to also understand like maybe these these little ants that you deal with are, are pretty important. Yeah, too. And it's such a posh thing for someone who is endless to not get like he how mm-hmm. turnt he is that Robbie is into being immortal. Yeah, of course. You know, though, I, I'd be evil. He'd get mad at me. I'd run a new MLM every hundred years. Just keep pretending to be my own daughter. Just keep it going. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. But that's why I love the scene when he's like, when he, he, he you, I loved seeing the ups and downs that he's going through. But then when he's, I guess it was the ooh, 1700s when they were shipping and he was explaining how his new trade was, you know, slave trading and Dream got real pissed. He's like, mm-hmm. no. He's like, you told me to do this my way. He's like, yeah. Don't take that away from other people, asshole. And I loved that. I love that. Because even though they're endless or whatever, and they think that the people are peons, like Dream at least knows, that shit's not right. (laughs) Right. Although, again, it's an interesting sign of how much, but also how little influence uh, these endless have. Because you would think, like, maybe Dream that has the power to make all, all the pe- all white people have these dreams about how wrong racism is or like horrors of these things to get them to stop doing that. I, my guess is like that's not how dream is supposed to interfere. You can only he influence. Has, 
yeah, he has this one influence with this one person, so he tries to say, like, don't do that. But yeah, clearly it's not – he's not supposed to guide the direction of humanity. Mm-hmm. It's just this one guy. Because well, that was interesting that we don't get to see what he says to William Shakespeare or what that deal was, but he turned his life around. Mm-hmm. And then, well, and Very then you so. get to the end with uh, with Calliope, and he can't just free her; he has to influence that guy to free her. So, yeah, mm. I guess it, their their powers are kind of like, well, Calliope is a Greek god, but the Greeks, you know, they right. can only influence mankind to a point. Yeah, that was a, that was another story that was so interesting, especially because. It, it was it was such a great metaphor, you know. Like I think most of us don't have the chance to, you know, enslave Greek goddesses, mm-hmm. but the idea of like abusive relationships where one person's very creative but kind of keeps the other one around as their inspiration, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of like love hate and all this. Like that's a very common trope in 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 actual relationships. And, and I just thought it was such a and that 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 episode's very heavy because. The only way to get inspiration from the muses when they're not giving to them is to habitually rape them, you know, trigger warning. So that episode was very hard, you know, to watch when you when you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, my God. And, you know, she'd been captured for what, 60 years, they said. Something like that. Yeah. Um, but and I, I did appreciate like we talked before about Game of Thrones. I think it's one of our last episodes we did together about how overly graphic they got with some of those sexual assault scenes. Yeah. And the fact that here it's very heavily implied and you know exactly what's happening, but you don't see he it. He just has a single scratch on his face. And that was all I needed to know exactly yeah. what happened and still feel that emotional reaction to it. Yeah. Without the kind of almost exploitative like portrayal of it, which I really appreciate. Yeah. That did that. And that stuff is so interesting because she Calliope and Onlyros or Morpheus is the father of Orpheus, who, mm-hmm. you know, well, that I'm so into Greek mythology. That was the one where he has to leave hell or Hades with the girlfriend that he went to get. And he's not allowed to look back. And if he right. does, she gets taken back forever. And he does look back. And then, you know, I think he just becomes a head or something. I don't know. I can't remember how that goes, but it doesn't go well for him. <laughs> Yeah, I think does he get turned into a pillar of salt? No, she gets turned. She into gets a turned of salt. into salt, yeah. and then the Furies carry his head around for a really long time. Right. Yeah. And I can't remember what ends up happening to him, <laughs> but it's not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just it. I think the show did such an interesting job of world building and of showing us this whole world where I think one of the frustrations often of kind of the supernatural aspect not. not Low, you know, the show, but just in general, super lower S, uh, uh, small case S, supernatural, is that, yeah, you get into God or gods, and so now it becomes about this, like, overarching good versus evil or morality or who's in control, and the show just avoids most of that. It's just like, yeah, here are these also characters doing their thing, and it affects humanity. Everything about the Calliope show, um, especially even because towards the end, like, Yes, there's a real turning point that Death has both when he – sorry, there's a real turning point that Morpheus has when he's with Death and then with his experience with the the once every hundred years fellow, Robert. Mm-hmm. But even then with Calliope, he has that like, I want to punish this person. I want vengeance yeah. against this person. And Calliope has to kind of step in and be like, look, you, you freed me. That's enough, you know? Yeah. And that was him, you know, even more growth. Though he's mm-hmm. like, we're exactly. not getting back together already, babe. Right. Walk down that street. Yeah. <laughs> Don't push your luck. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So talk about and then we so we end this uh show with a story that's kind of been be, be, been being uh seated the whole time, but we really comes to a, a head in the last couple episodes about this vortex and it's so much. <laughs> I I didn't love those last couple episodes. No. I thought there were some fun parts, but it, it, it was so complicated and so ins and outs. Like, I loved all the little bits of it. I loved Stephen Fry as the dream who'd gone missing, mm-hmm. uh, Fiddler's Green. What was kind of your overall take on it? I get that we had to go through that story for Dream to, to get the ultimate experience out of or become the ultimate version of himself and get through this experience he needed the whole rose walker thing to actually have those feelings that like because where we find him at the very end you know he's making new dreams he's putting the night he's like listening to lucienne he's listening to to everyone around him he is completely different and it 
took going through this Rose Walker thing for that to happen. So I don't right. hate how we got there. Um, but there were a couple like really slow episodes in there. But when you start to pick apart what actually happened on my second rewatch, I actually enjoyed them a lot more because there is so right. much messed up stuff going on, like from Rose's brother being kidnapped by the abusive um not kidnapped, adopted by the abusive adoptive parents. And then, you know, him getting taken by Corinthian, which I loved. I loved that Corinthian got him out of there. Like, if you weren't rooting for Corinthian at all, that scene was the best. I was like, kill those assholes. But right. it, it, I'm I'm rambling along because you meet so many new characters within five, five episodes. Mm. You have to learn what a dream vortex is that she can drop, you know, destroy everything in a, at the drop of a hat, I guess. Yeah, the metaphysics of it were kind of – I kind of appreciated how long we didn't learn them. And so once the story turned on the metaphysics of it, I was like, <laughs> eh. But you're right. Like all the all the individual stuff about the people in that crazy bed and breakfast <gasps> in Florida. John Cameron Mitchell. Did you know who that was? John Cameron Mitchell? The owner of the oh, bed and breakfast? I know that name. He's the original headway, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. He's a big guy in the drag world. I love him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was wonderful. The two goth sisters were great. The that that Kenan, couple, Ken and Barbie. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, I just thought all of it was just so charming and fun. Yeah, I just Ken, his dream was to get a blowy in a car. Dream bigger. Yeah, dream bigger. <laughs> you could get a blowy in a car any day of the week, Ken. Dream bigger. Look, Hugh Grant, who was this like major actor, married to a gorgeous <laughs> woman whose name I can't remember. That was his dream as well, apparently. <laughs> so you know, like, mm. who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, Anyway, anyway. Um, yeah, I think it's probably a good place to kind of wrap up. Is there any yeah. other last stuff you wanted to get into or talk about um, the, sh- the show? I thought that I thought that, that cat episode was... Oh, yeah, the end. Like, this is a little animated amazing. half episode. It was stunning. It was probably after all of the horror that I had just seen in every other episode, that's the episode that had me crying like a little baby. Yeah. I'm dream. I care more about the pets than the people. I don't know what the problem is, but I had a really hard time getting through that episode. Um, Because people do that, you know? Uh, We got one of our cats because we saw somebody throw a bag out of a car on the New Jersey Parkway. And we were only able to grab one of them because they all went running. uh, And we named that cat Parkway. Like, that stuff does happen. But the idea... That these cats, and you can see cats kind of act like this is true, that they used to be the gods and they were in charge. And it's such a, it's kind of like a lesbian story. You know, okay, the whole world is run by giant cats and it's just a bunch of naked women around. You know, (laughs) I loved it so much. But, you know, cats rule the world and women run around naked and that's what they, you know, grew up with. And that they, cats still have that ensa, like that Mm. I know that we were gods or something at some point, whether it was Egyptian or this. And that dream cares as much about their dreams as anyone else's. It was just so, yes. so good. And then what was there? There was a second live action half to that episode as well, right? That's that the Calliope of, part. Oh, the Calliope part. Yeah, that's right. And I, yeah, I thought both of them were, because they both were about like fallen glory and the idea of like, what do we, you know, what do we hold on to and what do we claim as ours? Because I think that one of the things I think the show did really well is to show how much harm is done by people who think they're being benevolent, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, even, like, the, um, you know, so much of it is people not understanding. Like, of course, what, what is it going to do to a cat? Like, take away its children. Yeah. Um, and they just don't care the, about it because they're cats. The murdering part, the killing the cat part is obviously something I think that everyone could see as wrong. But it's really common, you know? Like, in, in pet pet stores and the like or whatever like a, uh, an animal has babies and then you set you you take them right away give those animals out or sell them or whatever to the, as the next generation of pets to people and they're separated from their parents um yeah so i just thought everything about that last episode i think in some ways it was my favorite because as much as i love overarching arcs we talk about this all the time on the mcu and the like I like episodic television every now and then. And I thought this show especially works so well to me as episodic, as just like, yeah, just show me what's happening episode by episode in this world. It was cool because it ended at 10 episodes. And I think like three weeks went by and they still hadn't announced that uh, they were going to do a second season. And then it was Uh just like they had this episode in their back pocket and we're like, bam. Here's another one. And it, oh, that's awesome. And it, I was wondering how it worked. Yeah, it was a couple weeks later because I remember being it saying new episodes and I would just blow by it because I 
had just watched it. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. I didn't watch this in the first run. I'm like, oh, my God, there's a new episode. And I loved it. And then I was like, (laughs) the kittens. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was such an extremely fancy, gratuitous production. Uh, As as I turned to Ken, I go, what did they do this on Adobe? Did they did y'all do this on the computer? (laughs) But yeah, yeah. It's you can see how much the costumes, the set, the actors, like they clearly just were not quite into a uh, um House of the Dragon or Lord of the Rings, uh Rings of Power world. Mm-mm. But the budget was pretty high and yeah. I think it was well spent. And Dream so. and that I loved I mean, Dream, the guy who they cast, I like him in a lot. He was in um Irma Veep, if you ever saw that on HBO. Tom Sturge, mm-hmm. he's in a lot of uh you know, regal shows. That's not the word for it, but you yeah. know what I mean. Um, and he's so intense and I love him. You never see him smile. And then it's like the very end, he's like smiling through most of the thing. And I yeah. was like, okay, I could see the journey we went on and I would like to see it. You know, I love, I love when a production like this is giving a ton of money and they use it. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like this was perfectly done and it's stunning and it felt like a dream world. And I can't wait to keep going on this journey. Every time I looked at his face, which is utterly gorgeous. I mean, he's incredibly sexy. Cheekbones. Yeah, what I kept remembering is that line from, I think it's in the first season of Sherlock Holmes, the BBC, uh, where he first meets the lady, um, and she mentions how she could cut her hand smacking his cheekbones. Yes. And it's just such an evocative line about how sharp his cheekbones are. And that's exactly what I kept thinking as I looked at this I was guy. Watching, He's just uh, like if you go on his Instagram, there's videos of him doing the workout to get that body because in that first episode when he breaks out of the thing and he that's really him naked the whole time no cgi no camera stuff really on there he really got ripped like that because he's a skinny little guy like i feel like i like i could probably you know break his little tiny legs but that was the look like and underneath to see how much muscle you have to put on when you're that Mm -hmm. skinny it's just like do the work baby and then film it and let me watch yeah. Well, I shoved Cheetos in my face. <laughs> <laughs> it was there was a lot there was a lot of story to help you feel better about the fact that you're also just thirst enjoying so much of the show. Oh, but like God. every character I was gorgeous and sexy in some way or another. On every word he said too, even just like the way he would be in he was intense. He would get in every he had sexual um connections, I felt like, with almost every character he met. And it was just, yeah. it was fun to watch. The, you know what took me out of it a little bit? I might get a little flack for this. Patton no, Oswalt. I, mm, the way he was and, like, and, ah, Matthew the bird. You're not going to leave your bird in hell alone. I don't know. There was just something. I feel like I would have been much more accepting to Jessime than Matthew. <laughs> I, I really liked the character. Obviously, the character had a great name. And I love Patton Oswalt. But yeah, he, he felt a little <laughs> bit like he was in the wrong genre. Yeah, you know? he was just like a little too, I don't know. Bah! But he was a crow, yeah. so whatever. Um, it's fine. And I think that was kind of supposed to be the point. Is that I, I, to me, it felt like Dream was kind of wrapped up in his like, oh, I am so weighted down I'm by so the world. Sad. I have such ennui and depression, and I'm so sexy and sad. Sad. And Matthew was just like, hey, hey, let's do this. Like honestly, like that was me in high school <laughs> with my goth friend. Fuck it, you know? let's go like, to hell. <laughs> I I could I, I always used to joke that like I would love to be the guy who can sexually who I would love to be the guy who can look so sexy while I'm brooding. Yeah. But I can't brood. I giggle too much. <laughs> like, you know. He so, was a prime brooder. I, I like I, I actually think I like the character, but I can see how it he didn't feel like he was in the same genre. I think there was a point to that, but I can see it breaking the spell for a lot of people. Yeah. So But then I was like, right, well, I like him, so whatever. I'm here. Ashley, thank you so much. I only watched this because you suggested it. It was so much fun to watch. It was so much fun to talk about. Uh, you have your own podcast these days. You're sometimes still on MCU. Tell people more about what you're doing and how people can find you. Yeah, uh, you can uh, find me on the MCU cast, usually weekly, um, for whatever's going on over there. And then you can find my show at Bill and Ashley's Terror Theater on all the things where we break down um, – Horror movies from A to Z, from how they're made, uh, you know, marketing, filming, reactions. It's so even if you're not yeah. into horror, it's still really interesting to uh, learn about. It's definitely worth checking out. You guys do a great job of even for people who haven't seen them. 
you know, like, I'm not a big horror person, but hearing about, like, all the decisions that had to be made, especially because you're mostly talking about stuff that's made pre-CGI, mm. where you've got to figure out, okay, well, how does this effect work? Or should we actually <laughs> yeah. have this different – like, how many of the plot decisions are made based on what effect could you or could you not get? Yeah. Um, so – it's definitely worth checking out. Links to all that will be in the show notes. Yeah. Of course, this podcast is part of the Ethical Panda family of podcasts. You can find all the stuff about us by going to theethicalpanda.com. There you'll find information about this podcast, our Star Wars podcast. We've just done episode-by-episode coverage of Andor. Definitely check that out. But most importantly, you can find all the ways to contact us. You can email, Facebook, Twitter. As long as Twitter is still alive, that might be the next horror movie of the death of a social media platform you all cover. <laughs> Check us out. We'd love to hear your feedback. What do you think of Sandman? What were your takes on it? What uh, would love to hear what you think. Please write in. Let us know. Please check out all the podcasts. And most importantly, have a nice day. Bye. Sleep.